Saca, please. Hello and welcome to Tech Ka Masala. I am Abhishek and today I have with me Tom Standage, business editor of The Economist joining me from London who was previously at our podcast describes himself as the least musical of a musical family. It's great to have you back Tom. Hello, good to be back again. Uh, the last time you spoke, we spoke, you were kind enough to send across your copy of uh, your New York Times bestseller, History of the World in Six Glasses, and I'm officially your fan now, Tom. Oh, that's very kind of you, thank you. <laughs> yep, and all those readers who have not read it, the book which charts the history of six beverages like tea, coffee, wine, beer, and the impact that they have on the civilization that they represented. Now, Tom, I want to accuse you that you tricked us, the readers, into reading history in the pretext of reading about all these fascinating drinks. Would that be right? That's exactly right. Basically, I spiked the drinks, as we say, <laughs> and I spiked them with history. So you think uh-huh. you're just drink, drinking some beer or reading about the history of coffee, but actually you're having um, a history lesson without noticing it. So that's absolutely what I'm trying to do. So the rise of Islam, prohibition, Mesopotamia, Boston Tea Party, Romans, and how they wanted to imitate the Greeks, Coca-Cola and all that. Absolutely. History of the glass, that's right. Yep. And, and your new book is on technological uses of food. Well, yes, it's, a, it's the same sort of thing with food. And I'm looking at how food has influenced world history over the years. And essentially, I'm arguing it's rather like a technology. And different foods end up being used in different ways and have, have different effects when they're adopted. So from my point of view, it's a sort of adoption of technology story. But actually, it's really a, a history of the main ways that food has influenced the course of history. And I'm writing it because I wanted to read a book like that, and I couldn't find one. Mm-hmm. There are lots of books that tell you about the history of this cuisine or that cuisine. And there are lots of books that will tell you about the history of such and such a food and will invariably argue that it's the most important food. But what I never found was a book that said, how has food influenced history and which foods made the most difference? And there's an awful lot more than six of them. So I've grouped them together into six groups. I'm just doing food in warfare at the moment, which is quite interesting, and looking at which campaigns and outcomes were affected by logistical considerations and the availability of food and it's it's quite surprising how much of a influence that has had on um, on the waging of war over the centuries yeah. so, as you mentioned that there is not much written about this so where, do, where is your research material how do you get it must be difficult to research on this well it is because i'm synthesizing as with the drinks book i'm synthesizing across lots of different fields so some of the time it's um anthropology some of the time it's, it's uh, genetics some of the time it's archaeology some of the time it's economic history mm-hmm. some of the time it's military history um but that's part of the fun of it that i get to i have to go into all these fields and read lots and lots and lots of stuff and then decide what i think and that's what i enjoy doing so so it's not easy and it's it's a, a fiddle to have to jump between these fields and of course i worry all the time that i'm getting things wrong and i'm oversimplifying but that's what i have to do the rest of the time in my job and people say that in journalism you simplify and then you exaggerate and that's sort of what i'm doing in my books you just you need to just be careful you're not simplifying too much and not exaggerating too much but that's essentially the same thing uh-huh. So that explains why we should be talking about potatoes in this podcast. You chose to well, talk yeah. about potatoes. <laughs> well, uh, exactly. So I just wrote a piece in last week's Economist, uh, the one that's out at the moment, about potatoes. And, um, and it's based on some ideas that came out of the, the book. Um, so in, in the book, I'm explaining about the role of food in industrialization. And there were quite a lot of foods that helped to bring about the Industrial Revolution first in Britain, then elsewhere. 
and you know it's a, a range of foods including things like turnips um, but actually the most important I decide are sugar and potato hmm. um, and the, the potato in particular uh, is interesting is that this year is the international year of the potato it turns out that the UN has an international year of um, some crop every year something <laughs> Next year, it's not terribly exciting. It's um, it's natural fibres. Hmm. Uh, so the, the international year of natural fibres doesn't doesn't really float my boat, I have to say. But the potato <laughs> is something I'm much more interested in. I'm a, a keen baker and roaster of um, of roast potatoes, uh-huh. and um, and obviously everyone likes chips. And so what I write about in the Economist this week is I take some of these ideas about how the potato helped to cause the industrial revolution, and I point out that if you're an economist reader and you're a sort of pro-technology, neoliberal, free-trading, globalizing kind of person, <laughs> then, um, then the potato ought to be your favorite vegetable, or to be precise, tuber. And that's because the potato, as I say, helped to bring about the Industrial Revolution by basically liberating people from the land. You can produce more calories more quickly on less land with the potato than you can with grain. So you don't have to have everyone being farmers, and you can have more people doing light industry and part-time farming. And, uh, and that helped to um, bring about the Industrial Revolution in Britain. And it also helped to promote the cause of free trade, although in a rather tragic way, which was the potato famine in, um, in Ireland in 1845. Mm-hmm. And that was so terrible that the British government had to abolish the rules it had preventing grain imports, um, the Corn Laws, as they were called. And this was, in fact, the cause that The Economist was founded to campaign for in the, in the 1840s. We wanted to get rid of these laws because we were in favor of free trade. And even at the time, people could see that the, the Corn Laws were the sort of, um, you know, they, they were the make-or-break case. If you could abolish them, then uh, all the other silly laws uh, would fall away as well. And, and so they were duly abolished because of the potato famine and not because of the eloquent arguments of the economists, I'm afraid. Um, and, uh, and so then the era of, um, the, some people call it the first era of globalization um, in the second half of the 19th century, and certainly the era in which many governments adopted free trade as their official policy started that really all began with the with the potato famine and then of course you know uh, french fries are an icon of globalization so the potato i think is sort of up the economist street in many ways uh, what i was, was pointing out ah, and i thought it was only a potato <laughs> well there you go actually there are thousands of kinds of potato that's the other interesting thing as another piece in last week's issue uh, points out the um the peruvians um uh-huh. who originally well it's modern day peru but it was the people in the andes who originally domesticated the potato produced different varieties that would would work in different uh, situations different levels of moisture different soils and so on and there are thousands and thousands of kinds of potato in in peru and only a few hundred of them outside peru and then you know if i go to my supermarket i'm lucky if there's you know five different kinds available there so mm-hmm. people are saying that there's a great sort of undiscovered mountain of p- kinds of potato that we should all be um, discovering this year in the international year of the potato uh, i don't know if i'll go quite that far but um it certainly <laughs> sounds like there are some interesting varieties out there remaining to be discovered uh, well potato is used in many of uh, the food items and the ingredients in indian cuisine as well yeah there is one spicy dish called pav bhaji if you ever come down to bombay i'll treat you with that and it's awesome and it's spicy potatoes so it's like a patatas bravas or ah. yeah yeah Yes, batata, that's right, oh well. This is the funny thing, that so many things in what are old world cuisines are uh-huh. new world, and we forget that how recently they came across. I mean, potatoes and the chili, that's a really hilarious example. You know, the chili came from America. There were no chilies. It's hard to imagine Asian cuisine without chilies, particularly Southeast Asian cuisine, and yet they were introduced in the 16th century. And uh, then you think about Italian cooking, and it's hard to imagine that without tomatoes. But the Romans didn't have any tomatoes. They're from the Americas. And, uh, and similarly, and polenta, which is a you know a staple in, in mm-hmm. 
um, in Italy and is actually made from maize. So uh, the amazing thing is actually how fast maize, corn, spread after it was brought back by Columbus. It reached China within about 50 years. And so it spread, I mean, the Portuguese took it into the Indian Ocean and then it it spread into China um, probably that way. And it it may also have spread via the the northeast of India into China. But either way, it it got to the capital um, by about 1550. And the striking thing is that potatoes took so much longer. They took hundreds of years to spread Mm -hmm. um, from the Americas because people were so suspicious of them. They were so unusual. They grew under the ground and that meant they were associated with the devil. Um, and they were in the same family as Deadly Nightshade, and they weren't in the Bible, and all these silly reasons that people found not to eat them. And so they only gave them to animals, and it was only the sort of famines and the wars of the 18th century in Europe that forced everyone to try them, and they decided they weren't so bad after all. But they really were regarded with a lot of suspicion, whereas maize was regarded as just a sort of super kind of wheat. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not very fast. Anyway, these are the kinds of strange uh, historical highways and byways I've been going down working on my food book. So um, that will be finished later this year, I hope. Oh, that must be fun, researching yeah. about. <laughs> and potatoes are generally grown from the eyes of another potato and not from the seeds, so, which is another unusual thing about it. Yes, that's true. I mean, it, actually, uh, seeds are sometimes used because the good thing about seeds is you can be sure that you don't pass disease on from one <laughs> generation to the next. There's any kind of parasites or anything like that. So in some parts of the world, they do use seeds, and it's called true potato seed, I think, TPS. But yes, the whole thing about potatoes is you can just keep some of this year's crop and stick them in the ground and, and, uh, and they'll produce more. So, mm. um, so they, that's nice and simple as well. Yep. And do you know, Tom, there is a small Hollywood connection as well to potato. So there's a Hollywood what? Connection. Oh, what's that? Uh, if you recall the song which was used in the movie Harry Met Sally of Louis Armstrong where oh, yes. uh, he says potato, potato. You say potato, <laughs> I say potato. Yeah, that's a jazz standard. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Moving on to a completely different topic from potato and hardcore technology, uh, if we were to talk about the three companies, the big uh, three companies of Facebook, Google, and Apple. Uh, nowadays, there is so much written about these three companies and there is so much hype surrounding them. I would want to know, Tom, how much of it is a hype surrounding the smoke and how much of it is just hype? Yes, I see what you mean. Well, this is an interesting sort of meta story, I suppose. This is a story we didn't do last week. And sometimes the way we cover things in The Economist is not to cover them. Um, <laughs> and the, the best way to, the best thing to write about a story is nothing at all. Um, oh. So another example last week was that there was this big fine that the European Commission slapped on Microsoft of whatever it was, 1.3 billion euros in total or something. Right. And uh, we didn't write about it because this wasn't really a surprise. It wasn't really news. We've been expecting a big number like this to come out of the Commission since last October. So to write a story about it would be to sort of give it a prominence it didn't deserve. So we didn't. And we just put it on the business this week summary at the beginning. Similarly, in the science section, the newspapers are often full of these stories that say, uh, you know, scientists make cancer breakthrough. Or, I mean, cancer's still around. Um, mm. And uh, they usually appear on Monday, these stories, um, <laughs> if, you, if you look. And it's because, you know, there's been a, not much has happened over the weekend. It's quiet news day on Monday. Uh. And the health correspondent knows that's the best day to get the front page. So uh, invariably, you know, cancer breakthrough shock or something it appears on a Monday on the front page. Anyway, so it's a similar sort of thing that um, with the science section, we often comment on such bogus claims by just not writing anything at all. And then our readers who are curious about whether there was anything to that story um, 
look in our science section that week, we assume, and um, and see it's not there and go, oh, there must have been nothing to it. Then. <laughs> anyway, so the, the story you last week, it may yet turn into a story, but it's this whole question of Google and Apple and Facebook. So these are sort of the three hottest tech companies, I think you could argue, in 2007. Mm-hmm. And in each case, in the last couple of weeks, there have been signs that they might be going off the boil. So the number of unique users going to Facebook in some parts of the world has started to decline for the first time. Similarly, Comscore, which is one of these companies that keeps track of how many people go to websites, has, has reported that it thinks that the number of paid clicks will decline in January for Google, which would be the first time it had, I believe. And then in the case of Apple, there are a couple of analysts saying that the number of shipments of iPods is going to show a year-on-year decline for the first time at the end of this quarter, which would be at the end of this month. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're saying that we're going to see about 10.3 million iPods sold, I think, as opposed to 10.5 million in the first quarter of last year. So these are interesting sort of straws in the wind. The problem is none of is yet sort of that credible. The Google number is based on this number from an independent company which tries to guess how many people go to websites. And the thing about, there are several companies that do this and they all come up with different answers. So that tells you that you need to sort of take what they say with a pinch of salt. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that there may be good reasons why Google's paid clicks have declined, even if they have. I mean, the company itself hasn't confirmed this, but but it may be that, for example, if they've suddenly made, made a breakthrough in stamping out click fraud, that means they can strip out the, the fraudulent clicks more right. efficiently, and that will mean that the value per click goes up because they're only getting real clicks. Hmm. And similarly, one of the things Google does is they try and prevent people from clicking on ads accidentally. And this is all a question of where you put ads on the page. And if you put them too close to something that people click on, they may click on an ad straight away and then, oh, that was a mistake, and then they navigate away again. Google has various means of trying to work out what an accidental click is. So the better they are at stamping out fraud and the better they are at preventing accidental clicks, the smaller the number of clicks. And so, mm. you know, it, paradoxically, it could look worse, but it could actually be better because it means that the, the value of each click is higher. So we won't know until we get the numbers from Google. Similarly, with Apple, you know, there's a range of estimates from analysts. Although there are all these reports from Taiwan saying that the, the suppliers to Apple for the iPod and, and its various components are saying that demand is slowing down, uh, we really don't know. No, and the thing about Apple is they can surprise you with a new announcement just when you're least expecting it. So again, it's too early to say in that case. And in Facebook's case, I don't know how seasonal the traffic to Facebook is, but if you've got the phenomenon that you had last year where a lot of people have started using it for the first time and, you know, maybe they, they went to it in December and sent each other lots of greetings, messages, or whatever. Maybe there was a, a, a seasonal bump there, and then there will be a, a decline in January. So again, I don't know how real that is. You can't monetize these sorts of sites very easily, and that people are kind of feeling overloaded by the need to go back and keep up with all the friend requests and, and all the rest <laughs> of it. So it may turn out that this is a sort of turning point and that you know people are, are getting bored of it, but it may not. But to do a story to, to sort of make all these points and then knock them down again would, would probably be... Right. Um, a bit silly. So there I am explaining why we didn't do something, and I suppose I'm really also explaining why you don't need to have listened to anything I've said for the last five minutes. <laughs> uh, but anyway, it's, it's a, right. you know, interesting if true, I suppose, is, what, is the way to yes. summarize what's happening here. But, but what if, let's assume a hypothetical situation where all Facebook, Google, and Apple, all of them fail relatively at the same time, and they culminate at the same time, then it will be a big deal, don't you think? Um, well, I don't, I don't know. If they did all slow down, it would be for different reasons. I mean, in Apple's case, the iPod is, has done incredibly well, and they've done very well by making cheaper and cheaper versions of it that, mm. that drive it into new markets. But they really haven't got anywhere else to go with that because the, the basic app iPod shuffle now is down to, I think it's 
fifty dollars or something, forty dollars. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really is. And they, you know, uh, Amazon's giving them away with if you buy something, you get a free iPod Shuffle. I mean, it's uh, oh. they, they've run out of runway there. So, so they uh, and people are saying that the the best growth prospects they have now are actually in their core business of making computers, which have you know everyone seems to have forgotten they also do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so if they did have a problem, that would be for that reason. Google, the read across from Google, if things were to slow down there, would be rather more dramatic because there's this big question about whether Google is immune to a downturn in the US or not. And the theory goes that you know most of its money comes from advertising. It's really an advertising company with a search engine attached and none of the right. other things it does make money. And I think something like three quarters of the people who work at Google work on loss-making projects. Hmm. Um, I mean, the case against Google, if you want to make it, is that they haven't ever introduced another product after search advertising that, yeah. um, that makes serious money. Yeah. Uh, and they've tried lots and lots and lots of things and none of them will work. Anyway, maybe, maybe they'll find something. You know, that's not really the issue. The question is, if the advertising market slows down, and that's, this is a weird year in that case as well, because you've got the Olympics, and you always get a bumpy year in mm-hmm. the Olympics and in the US election, because the uh, candidates are spending money on advertising. So that right. always kind of boosts things somewhat. But anyway, let's, let, you know, there's, there's a recession, and people spend less on advertising. Will they cut back on internet advertising as well, and will it hurt Google? Or will they cut back in other areas and say, well, we're, we're going to shift more spending into internet advertising, because it's more quantifiable, and you can see the results more easily. And you can make a case that even in a recession, you actually get more internet advertising spending because people think that that's money that's you know better spent than speculative brand building advertising elsewhere or something like that. So do you see what I mean? You've got essentially a sort of market saturation problem in, in uh, Apple's case. You've got a broader macroeconomic um, problem in Google's, and you've got a sort of fashion problem in Facebook. So so they're, they're completely decoupled from each other, I think. And, uh, and so if they were all to go um, to sort of turn the corner at the same time, then um, then I don't think that would that would just be a coincidence. Well, then we would have a story on the Economist for sure. Uh, yes, I think we would. We'd have to. We'd have to um, I don't know. It'd be interesting to. I mean, it is interesting to put them together to try and read across from one issue to another. But I think the causes in this case are very different. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great, Tom. Thanks a lot. I know we are running out of time, but I request you to just hang in there for a series of 10 questions that I plan to ask. And I did the same with uh, Daniel Franklin, the executive editor. And I just wanted to see what answers you have for these questions that I have for you. Okay. Okay. Here we go. How would you describe in one word the economist's editorial view of the world? Mm, Global. Who has half-jokingly but famously said, I used to think, now I just read the economist? Oh, that was Larry Ellison. Oh, bang on. In a word or two, what is your message to a few who opine that The Economist is pitched at an American readership only because of its high circulation there? That's not true. I mean, we're doing well in America because after the Iraq war in particular, there is a strong demand in America for an outside perspective on America, basically. So we do well there, but uh, Mm -hmm. we assume that our reader is nowhere in particular. is a Martian who has just arrived on Earth and is curious and happens to speak English. Awesome. Everyone has their favorites. What is your favorite section on the economy? I suppose the science section. That's where I started, and I still think nobody does science coverage like we do, so Mm -hmm. it's great. As the business editor, name one journalistic liberty that a correspondent takes in his article that you would pardon. Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, I'm just trying to think. I mean, I don't mind. Well, there are lots of things that... Uh, for example, a lot of journalists put themselves into the story on other publications, and we don't allow that. But occasionally when we do, we have to say this correspondent or something like that because mm-hmm. we don't have bylines. Um, 
And I think when you can make that work, um, which is very rare, most of the time it has to come out, but when you can make it work, then, um, then I think that's great because it reminds the reader that there are human beings writing this stuff. So, um, so I, I, I like it when it's possible to allow that. I hope that counts as an answer. All right. <laughs> okay, then let me ask you the opposite question. One such liberty that you would never pardon. Well, actually, I, I, take out, I take out abbreviations. I mean, in can't and won't, and I think it sounds too chatty, so I take those out. But, um, but it's a matter of taste, and it varies. I mean, some sections of The Economist have a lot more of, of that than others. So the Britain section tends to have a slightly chattier tone, and uh-huh. of course, the editor likes things that way. But, um, if The Economist were a cartoon character, what would it be? Ooh. Oh, that's a really good one. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think of some cartoons now. Um, I suppose you could have Owl from Winnie the Pooh. He's not really a cartoon character, but uh-huh. they made a cartoon aspect. But, so some people think he's a bit silly. But mm-hmm. um, Is that because an owl can turn his face 360 degrees? Well, that's, not, that's not the reason I think of it. I suppose Owl, owl is a bit self-important, and you know that's probably one of our failings, that we can be a bit self-important sometimes. But, um, mm-hmm. but basically knows what he's talking about. Great. Biggest compliment that you ever received as a writer or as a business editor? I think the fact mm-hmm. that my book was a was a bestseller in America was was great because I always wanted to write a book that did well and it and it did so that's an accomplishment I'm very proud of as a writer. Great, and I hope the next book is also a bestseller. I hope it is too, but we'll see. We'll see how it goes. We wish you all the best, all of us from Indigast, and it was great having you, Dom. Thanks a lot for being here again. Not at all. Thanks very much indeed. I enjoyed it.